0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: This morning, away from the rest of the world to, in a way, sit without all those distractions, to set aside what is good, to gain a bit of what is better. Give us a time here to commune with you and to hear from you in a different way, in a unique way, and so thank you for that, and then please, thank you and please, will you now meet us and teach and build us up, help us to understand some things that are here in this passage. There's maybe a bit more intellectual stretching this morning than normal. Help us to understand, but then also help us to appreciate so as to live what is new and sweet here. So teach us, shape your church this morning. Spirit of God, will you have your way here in our midst. This this new relationship that you've made with us now, make it real and rich. Help us to enjoy you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Most people who are engaged to be married have a long list of things they need to get done on the way to the wedding date. They need to pick a date first. They need to pick a location, find a dress, ask friends to be in the wedding party, addition some caterers and some musicians, get a photographer and so on. You, you check off that list as you check off the days on the calendar, kind of moving towards the date and then the big day arrives, ceremony, celebration. And then that stage of life is over done. And you don't do those things anymore, naturally so. Not because they were bad or wrong, but because they have served their purpose and are now irrelevant. You do have some of the after effects of that. You you found a photographer, that person photographed, and now you have a photographic album. Now you've got a wedding album. But the action, the the tasks of the photographer and all that, that, that's all over as the engagement activities were fulfilled. And a new relationship now exists with new activities and new ways of relating. Fiance to fiance became bride to groom becomes husband to wife, changes. The old passes away because the new has come. Now, I brought this idea up once before, you may recall. He uses the exact same analogy. Several weeks ago, just a couple chapters ago, though, but several weeks ago, we were back in chapter 5, verses 17 and following. There, at the beginning of the main body of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explained how he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. That is, the Old Testament, what it modeled, what it taught, what it commanded. He didn't come to abolish that all, but to fulfill it, in fact. Like how a wedding day and subsequent marriage fulfills, not abolishes an engagement. If you break an engagement, that abolishes it, but when you get married, it just fulfills it, and it's, it's over, and it naturally passes away. Because in a real way, the engagement is pointing towards, it is for the marriage, like the Old Testament is pointing towards, it. and the Old Testament was for Jesus. And when the new comes, therefore, the old passes away. A new relationship happens that brings about a different new framework, a different way of relating to God. And that's what brings us to our passage today in Matthew 9 a passage that starts with a simple question about fasting. So we'll talk a little bit about that topic again, just a little bit. But really here, fasting is just the topic. It's kind of like the on-ramp on the, on the larger topic about how God's people relate to God now. There's a different relationship that exists within a different framework. And that's what we're gonna look at today in Matthew 9. So let me read this passage. This is beginning in verse 14. Matthew chapter nine fourteen, and going down through verse 17. I'll look at this, and then we'll draw two observations. It says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom was with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved." Matthew 9. Two observations. Here's the first. Jesus' coming created a new framework for God's people to relate to him in a new way. Jesus' coming created a new framework for God's people to relate to him in a new way. The first point is about the big picture within the particular discussion about fasting. So we're not going to talk about fasting yet, but it does start there. Verse 14 begins with the word then, and as we've seen a few times in Matthew, sometimes his language is is a bit inexact. It might just mean, and then here's something else that happened. But it also might be, and some of the other Gospels indicate perhaps this is the case, there might also be a sequential connection here. If it's not chronologically connected, it is at least logically connected. A question about fasting following a passage about feasting. Jesus, as we just saw, had gone to a feast at Matthew's house. This is the previous passage. And the Pharisees disapproved of that, verse 11, because of who Jesus is eating with. All those unclean tax collectors and sinners. Bad people. That good people are supposed to stay away from. Especially good people who want to remain ceremonially, unclean, ceremonially clean so they can have access to God at the temple. Now in verse 14, maybe the disciples of John were standing right there and and with the Pharisees saw that same thing, or maybe they just knew his general reputation, but they raise a question now, not about who he feasts with, but that he feasts. They ask, why do we, the disciples of John, the Baptist that is, and the Pharisees also, we, we both agree Fasting should be a regular and frequent part of a godly person's life, but you don't teach that to your disciples. Why not? John the Baptist, and just think about John the Baptist for a second, he, he was very, very clear. He was a, a strident preacher. Repentance. With that goes clearly self-denial, and he modeled that with his life. I mean, he he ate locusts. He wore very simple clothes. He lived in the middle of the desert. Self-denial, set aside all the stuff of the world, get rid of it, because what we need to be about people, you can read this in Luke 3, is preparing the way of the Lord, making his path straight. He is coming like a fire, and if we are not repentant and clean and holy before him, when he comes, we will have trouble. So repent and set aside the world, and fasting fit in very nicely right with that. Self-denial, self-denial. Set things aside and prepare you the way of the Lord. That's John the Baptist. The Pharisees, really different, but ironically sort of the same. The Pharisees fasted twice a week and on a whole bunch of holidays. They fasted all the time. These two otherwise really different groups, you know, when they met, they were, they were not friends, but they're otherwise very different groups. They're on the same page here, at least. But Jesus didn't teach it and was widely known to attend feasts and celebrations and parties. It's kind of what he was like. And it seems to John the Baptist's disciples like he's kind of irreligious. I mean, you, Jesus, frankly, you seem to be more into self-indulgence than self-denial. Kind of like you're not taking this religious stuff very seriously. So what gives? And Jesus answers verse 15 with a very helpful wedding analogy, which right on the service everybody can understand. A wedding is a joyful celebration, especially when all the participants are gathered there, when the bride and groom are there. It's a time to party, not mourn. And obviously fasting on the other hand about setting aside things is gonna create some sorrow and some emptiness and some lowliness. And those two things just don't fit. You don't go without at a party. You don't mourn at a celebration, so not the time. And initially, one might read that and say, sure, okay, that makes sense at the surface level, but then at the next level down, you might then immediately ask, but hold on, what makes this a wedding? I get the analogy, but why would you say this is a wedding, Jesus? Because of what's going on here as Jesus stands there, what's going on here and because of what's going on at weddings. A wedding creates a different, unique relationship between a man and a woman who knew each other in some way or another previously but now are joined together in a very different way. They are relationally united. Something different happened there. They don't don't become one another. He's still him, she's still her, but the two become one. They are are in union, relationally speaking. And God made marriage like that because of what he was going to do when he sent Jesus. Jesus didn't, like, grab hold of a marriage. Something here that could be a great analogy other way around, God made marriage like that, two different ones who are united and become one, because God knew I'm trying to model, to illustrate something that's coming. We're two different ones. God the Son, Christ, unites himself to the assembly of God's people, what we've come to call the church, the bride of Christ. He made marriage like that because he's going to unite. God and God's people. And Jesus is speaking of what's going on right now as I stand here. Here I am. I've come here, and I myself am the bridegroom. Come to wed the people of God. Come to unite myself, God, with them. We're not going to become each other, but we will be in union with each other. And that actually is the same thing John the Baptist said. You can look at John 3 and you can find that. John himself, looking at Jesus, said, there's the bridegroom, and the reason people are flocking to him is that he has come to call his bride, and that makes me happy. John said that in John 3. So really what Jesus is saying to John's disciples are the same thing John said to John's disciples. And John, of course, got that from the Old Testament. The model set up in the Old Testament is God as husband of his people. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's this this wedding that gets marred and broken and torn down and, and messed up. And the idea developed across all the long centuries is that God will fix that marriage one day when he sends Messiah to make it new. That's the model of the Old Testament. And what Jesus is saying is, that's me. This is a wedding because I'm the Messiah and I'm here to claim my bride. So this passage, this statement, is tremendously messianic. It's a bold and clear statement that they almost certainly missed. And in part, they might have missed it because of what he says next about how when I am taken away, We can look back at all this, and we understand this. I mean, what I've said here is probably familiar to many of us, and we can look back at when I am taken away, and you can see in there a clear allusion to the cross and the ascension. But that would not compute with their idea of what Messiah is like. When Messiah comes and claims the people of God as the bride, then it's happily ever after. There's no going away. What are you talking about? That makes no sense. So perhaps that helped them miss it. But we we can see all that. We understand what's going on. He will be taken away, there will be mourning. We'll come back to that later in the second point. But Jesus is saying that he is indeed the Christ, the great groom, come to Mary's bride, and when that happens, it means some more things too. Verses 16 and 17. Two illustrations making a simple point from simple stuff in common life. You don't put Unshrunk new cloth as a patch on old, already shrunk cloth. Because when it gets wet, the new will shrink and will tear away from the old and it'll end up worse than it started. New doesn't go with old. Same thing with wine. Wine Wineskins were essentially thin leather containers made to hold wine, and new ones were still pliable. The, The leather had some give in it, some flexibility. So if you put new wine in it, as the wine was still fermenting and giving off gases, that worked because the new wineskins would stretch a little bit and be okay. But if you put that in old ones that had dried out and become brittle, it burst. So the old ones were great for what they were for, but they served their purpose and when the new crop of grapes comes in and the new wine comes in, you've got to set the old aside because new doesn't go with old. Same point. So what's he getting at? This is the extended answer to the fasting question. See, they're they're connected right there. He's adding on. He's saying more about what they asked about fasting. Yeah, my guys are doing it differently than you guys are doing it. Because you guys are doing it in the old way. Maybe you, disciples of John, with good motives for good reasons, Pharisees, bad, self-serving, hypocritical reasons, but you're both doing it in the old way. And the new has come. I'm the groom. This is a wedding. Things have changed. And incidentally, Jesus said, could have said, you guys could glance back at, follow this here, you guys could have glanced back at the previous paragraphs and you could have asked the same question in any number of different ways. You could have said not just why do you fast, but maybe how come you guys can eat with unclean people and we don't? Why do you touch lepers and we don't? Why do you hang out with Gentiles? You know, there's laws about that stuff in the Old Testament. Or, maybe you could have asked, Jesus could say, and one day you will ask, how come your disciples eat pork and eat food with the blood in it, not kosher? There's laws about that in the Old Testament. Why do you do that? Or, in fact, why don't you circumcise your baby boys as a way of putting in them into the covenant with God? That's in the Old Testament, Jesus. Why don't you offer a sacrifice at the temple after a child is born? In fact, why don't you even have a temple at all? You know, there is no temple in Christianity. Why don't you have a temple, and why don't, let alone, why don't you go to it regularly for the three great feasts that are there's a ton about that in the Old Testament? Why don't you go there, and why don't you afflict yourselves with fasting at the Day of Atonement, and why don't you offer a lamb as a sacrifice on the Passover? Why don't you do that? It's all there, Jesus, in the Old Testament. Clearly commanded. Why don't you ceremonially wash your hands and your face before you go into worship? And on and on and on. We do those things, and there are laws about them in the Scripture, Jesus. Why don't you? On and on and on. All of them could be different on-ramps under the same basic question. Fasting just came up because, you just ate a meal. Triggered a thought. There's a bigger question here about the whole framework. That's what Jesus is speaking to. Questions could multiply. And his answer essentially is, I don't teach them to fast like you guys do. I don't teach them to do all those things like you guys do. You are fasting to prepare the way for the Lord to come. Here I am. That all was the engagement period this is the wedding. We don't live engagement life anymore. We live married life. A different relationship in a different framework carries on differently. Never again to be like the old. The new is and so the old is gone. Okay. That's what he's saying. What does that matter? Well, it matters quite a bit particularly for our theological understanding of the times, and by the times I don't mean like the 2020s, I mean all of this time since Jesus stood on the earth, this era. Our theological understanding of this time, and I might even say our intellectual theological understanding. So, I think that this passage, and therefore this sermon about this passage, in a way maybe different than some others, pushes us to think and to understand some things a little bit differently than maybe maybe we're used to. But this matters for here. There is a clear and coherent answer to all those possible questions. Why don't you do, why don't you do, or why do you do? A clear and coherent answer to all of that. Very uniquely, this Christian faith is intellectually robust and intellectually coherent. This is not a I feel like faith. We start out by believing that certain things actually happened in time and in space. Moses actually lived and led real people up to Mount Sinai. Jesus actually was born of a virgin and died on a cross, and a dead man came back to life, and on and on and on and on. And on. We actually believe real things happened in real time and space, and because those things happened, certain teachings then are true and accurate. And because of those things and those teachings, then certain feelings and certain lifestyles and certain hopes are reasonable and beautiful appropriate. And that all holds together, it coheres, but it starts with stuff that actually happened, and then teachings that are real because of the stuff, then the feelings afterwards. This is very unique to the Christian faith. And that all matters because sometimes Christians, we ourselves wonder, where did all this stuff come from? Is it actually true? Am I right? Because a whole bunch of people feel differently and think we should do something else. But you gotta walk back through the train to what actually happened in history. We wonder that ourselves sometimes, and so do other people who are not Christians. They wonder that about the Christian faith. Sometimes they wonder, or perhaps we might say accuse, picking out something from the Old Testament law. They might say, how come you guys drink milk while you also eat beef? You know, there's a lot about that in the Old Testament. How come you're fine with two different types of fabric woven together, not just only one pure fiber fabric? There's a law about that in the Old Testament. How come you don't execute adulterers? There's a law about that in the Old Testament. Anybody ever asked you any of those things? And sometimes they ask them, which of course really is accusing, They're asking them because what they're doing is accusing us of picking and choosing. Making this up as we go along. The stuff that we find reasonable, we hold on to. The stuff that we like, we hold on to. And the stuff that doesn't make any sense to us, we throw out. We're just picking and choosing all this as we go. That's the thought or the the accusation. Yeah, you do things differently. Except where you like it, then you hold on to those commandments. And you forbid those things. The answer to those questions, whether it's fabric, what we eat, what justice looks like and mercy looks like, the answer to all of that, all of that, is the engagement marriage paradigm. All the way through, the answer is always There was a system and there was a framework that was an engagement period pointing forward to something else. And when the new comes, always the old passes away of necessity. So when the cleanness that the food laws and the multiple fabrics and all that the washings that we're all pointing towards, when the, the new way that that was all pointing towards and creating a need for is accomplished as Jesus dies on the cross to make those who trust him clean. When that happens, the new pushes out the old. Naturally, it was pointing towards that. When the new forms of judgment and justice and mercy and grace come about as Christ is crucified for sin, and people are in the community of God that is not racial and ethnic, but is a church community. People are in or said outside of in a different way. When all of that happens differently now in the New Testament, of course the way it was done in the Old passes away naturally, fulfilled, not abolished. The answer always is this engagement wedding paradigm. Now, it is not simplistic. I'm not trying to say it's simplistic. And that's a problem because sometimes people will not listen to anything that takes longer than a tweet to explain. That's real. This is not simplistic. It is robust. It is deep. But there is a coherence across the whole of the faith. The way things are now, there's a reason for that, a very natural, logical reason, because of what has happened, how the times have moved on, how God has brought New, the promised and pointed to that fulfilled the old. This matters for our intellectual understanding of the faith and for our ability to answer other people's intellectual wonderings or doubts or accusations. There's a new framework that very naturally was always predicted, and when it comes, to the old leaves. So a framework, it's new. But beneath or maybe inside of that framework, there also is a new relationship that perhaps, Jesus doesn't lean into this as much here, but it's it's here, perhaps means maybe a little more to you personally this morning. Because the framework, I think, speaks to an intellectual wholeness, But inside of the framework, a a new relationship, a new covenant has happened. And Christians now, we live and experience God differently. This is maybe difficult for us to understand because we've only lived this life. But what's at the heart? If you ever imagine, what's at the heart of the new? Ezekiel 36 I heard a preacher a long, long, long time ago said, "The address for the new covenant is Eze three six two six, Eze three six two six. That's the address of the new covenant. That's where it lives. Twenty six and twenty seven. Eze three six two six and two and two seven. I will put my spirit in you." Write my law on your hearts, put my spirit in you, and move you to follow my decrees. The uniqueness of the new here, the freshness of the new here, is that God lives inside of us. That's why there's no more temple in Christianity, is that each of us is the temple. Christianity does not have temples because it's full of temples. Every single one of us is the temple of God. God, in other places in the scripture, Jesus will talk about how he's the temple. He's the place where God and man meet. Other places will talk about how all of us together are the temple. But that's the case. All of us together are the temple because Jesus, the temple, lives inside of us each as the temple. That's the the core of the new. That's the freshest part of the freshness is that the spirit of God has come to live inside of you to move you to follow his decrees, to encourage you, to strengthen you, to teach you wisdom, to grow you up and mature you. You are married to him. The two of you, so different and so separate, have, been, have become united so closely. You don't become each other. He's still him, you're still you. But you are united so closely that he actually lives inside of you. And wherever you go, he goes there with you. So different than the old framework where God dwelt in the temple. And people, you can read this in the Psalms, oh, how I long to be in the presence of God again. I want to go to the temple. That's you now. You're the temple. You're able to dwell with him, to commune with him wherever you sit, wherever you walk, wherever you stand. There's a new framework, which is great, and I think important to understand, but there's also a new relationship within that framework, which is awesome to lean into and live. The lover of your soul lives in your soul, dwells within you, and means to walk with you and commune with you in a very deep and real personal way. That is sweet and only possible because Christ came, cast away, cast off of you the sin that kept you from him, brought you into union with him, and then poured his spirit into you. That's the new covenant. That's the new relationship, the new life that you have. And that's awesome. So why would you ever mourn again then? Well, we do mourn. Jesus actually talks about that. And we do experience that now because there's a problem with this new relationship. Awesome as it is, it exists in the whirlwind of this world. And we are really easily distracted. And so there's a second point, shorter. Fasting can help us connect with him like we need to while he is physically away. Fasting can help us connect with him like we need to while he is physically away. So we saw verse 15. Jesus answered the fasting question with essentially not now because I'm here now, but later when I'm taken away during that time, which is this time now, all of this time now, then they'll fast. And like we saw when we discussed fasting back in chapter six, this is not a command to fast, just an acknowledgement that Christians will. So back in chapter six, he talked about how to fast and how not to fast, the mindset behind it and so on and so. There's a lot more about fasting in the sermon from chapter 6 that's available online or on the YouTube channel if you want to go look at that. I'm not going to repeat all of that here now. We're just going to work on, on one particular point that fasting comes from. It's generated by mourning. A sorrow because he's absent. The fasting that John the Baptist was doing, for instance, is because he's not here yet. Please come. Let's get ready for him to come. And the fasting that a Christian would do now is because he has bodily left. I'm sorrowful about that. But not, I'm so sad I can't eat. Sometimes we experience some sort of a of a sorrowful situation or a mourning and we have no appetite and food seems off-putting and I just can't eat. That's not the kind of thing Jesus is talking about here because that's usually involuntary when that happens. Like you just don't have it in you as you mourn. But he's talking about a voluntary choice made from sorrow. Having been saved Brought into a new relationship with Him, we love Him, we know Him, we can delight in His presence, we can experience that presence, and that's possible because His Spirit lives within us. We can commune with Jesus. We all know that, but we also all know, and sometimes you experience this like really shortly after you become a new Christian, and there's this there's great period of elation. They, we even call it the honeymoon phase. There's this great period of elation, and then you realize I can commune with God, and I can also not commune with God. That's also possible, too. His spirit lives within me, but bodily he's not here. In the time that Jesus is saying this, the 12 disciples really had no choice in the matter as to whether or not they lived every moment of every day in the presence of Jesus. And they they hadn't... No problem with focusing. I mean, no no degree of life's chaos or distractions or temptations could keep them from communing with Jesus because, literally, he is sleeping right there and standing right there and walking right here and he's teaching right here. I don't have any choice in the matter whether I hear the voice of Jesus or not. He does. If he talks, I hear it because we are together. That's not the case now bodily, he's not here. And so we have discovered, have we not, that it's very possible to live out of sight, out of mind. Two married people get married and you get a different relationship now. There's something that's different. You relate to one another in a very different way. You live together. You even sleep in the same bed together. You're right there next to each other. But there's also life and work and maybe kids and a dentist appointment and grocery shopping and hobbies and television and the internet. All kinds of good gifts that you partake in and partake of and partake of and partake of and, and on and on. And the marriage can grow a little stale. not any of our marriages, but other, other people's marriages, right? I'm not talking about me or anybody I know, but so I have heard. It can grow just a little bit stale. Even right next to the person. And you can begin to notice that. And maybe you can even begin to really notice it. In certain moments, feel it. And maybe even with a twinge of sadness, one might say, I miss you. In your mind, or maybe even out loud to the person who's sitting right there scrolling through his phone. I miss you. I'm, I'm right here. No, no, you're not. I mean, you are. but you're not. That happens in human marriages and that sort of thing can happen between Christians and our beloved one, Jesus. There's a lot going on in life. It's very full, very full of good gifts. I'm not talking about sinful things, I'm talking about the the good and normal stuff that, that is wonderful and fine to partake of But it's a lot, and it can be a whirlwind. And so we can miss him, and we can walk through life with him closer than a brother right here dwelling within within you. You can walk through life with him, but distant. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you feel that? Do you feel that even right now, maybe? Is there a little twinge of sadness, a little twinge of sorrow, Ah, you know, you are the one who loves me. I, I know that. I see the whole different framework, but the relationship within the framework is not sharp right now. Something that's a little bit, I miss you. Maybe a fast would be helpful for you. Fasting sets aside on purpose by deliberate choice from sorrow. Sets aside something or some things that are otherwise good and fine, maybe even beautiful. Sets aside the good and necessary in the exchange for something better and more necessary. What you really want and really miss, communion with God. I talk more about this in, the chapter six sermon, but what we're so often chasing when we feed ourselves with the good stuff of earth, what we're so often really missing behind that is communion, union with Jesus. And the fast can be no command, no command here. Certainly not command, certainly not guilt. But the fast maybe would be a, a, a tool for you to say like in the midst of me missing him, I can see all the stuff that I've actually kind of taken in and taken on. And I want to say about some of that, I'm going to set that aside to create space, to, at, at the very least to create time. If you're not eating, cooking, scrolling through the internet, watching TV, whatever it is you might fast or if you're not doing that, you've got more time to read your Bible and pray, yeah more time there but particularly within the time you've got more focus something that again I mentioned this before something that I find and I think a lot of other people who are far more experienced with this than me have found is that when you fast when you set aside something what happens is a desire rises up and you notice oh that's the thing I feed with oh I'm not feeding that with that anymore today or this week huh uh oh the emptiness is just gonna sit there. I usually stuff a candy bar in that emptiness. I usually stuff sports center in that emptiness. I, but I'm not right. Oh no. The lover of my soul is supposed to go in that emptiness. And with time, you go there, and with nothing else, you stay there. And him being the lover of your soul that he is, him being your spouse says I want that relationship. I, I came to make a whole new framework and to make a new relationship with you. I want that relationship to be vibrant and real. Let's talk. Let's commune. A fast might be helpful for you for that. Amidst all the business here to set aside things, to make space, to make time, make focus to make an appetite for the one that really you know loves you and really you know you want. It's helpful here, helps us to commune with him here now while he is away. One day he'll return and take us to be with himself physically for forever. Until then, the new relationship can be, for you, can be fed and helped by fasting.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801 943 0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah. 84121